You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. With unprecedented mail-in voting expected because of the coronavirus pandemic, many state officials concerned about slower-than-usual mail delivery are extending mail-in ballot deadlines and making backup plans to smooth early voting in the weeks before the November election. But experts warn that tens of thousands of ballots might still be thrown out. Joining me is election law expert Richard Brofald, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, I want to start by getting your take on the legitimacy of President Trump's claims that voting absentee by mail is okay, but voting by mail is not and is going to lead to huge fraud. Well, the president is trying to make a distinction between two different things which are not different from each other. Even the terminology is blurred. The president himself has almost always voted absentee, as has most of his cabinet and his family. And I think he's thinking about, and it's the same kind of absentee ballot, but in his case, it was you had a justification for voting absentee in that you were going to be uh, out of the jurisdiction, maybe on business, or you were sick, you couldn't get to the polls. We've had that kind of mechanism in place for a century. I mean, it really goes back to the Second World War. In modern times, many states have moved to make it very easy for people to get absentee ballots, so-called no-excuse absentee voting, which is now more than half the states. And a handful of states, I think we're now up to five, have said, we're just going to mail you the ballots. Don't, you don't even have to go through the trouble of asking for absentee votes. We're going to do the entire election by mail and have a, with a very, very limited exception for people who are unable to use the mail. So that a handful of states most in the West have been all mail-in voting. They don't even use the term absentee. But it's the same kind of ballot and the same mechanism as would be the case in old-style absentee voting. A voter at home fills out a ballot, puts it in an envelope, seals the envelope, usually then puts another envelope over it, signs their name. Some states have other requirements like witnessing and mails it in. In some places, you can bring it in. In some places... They have so-called drop boxes where you can drop it off if you don't trust the Postal Service. But it's literally the same ballot, whether or not it is one that you requested because you were going to be out of town that day, or it's one that the state has mailed to you. So this is a long way of saying that this president is drawing a distinction where there isn't one. President Trump has also been attacking the post office for quite some time, and he's now put a new postmaster general in who has barred overtime and put in other changes that some of the postal workers are complaining about. What can be done to make sure that the post office can deliver the mail on time come election day? That's a very tough question. It is one of the things the Democrats have been fighting about in in Washington. In their bill, their COVID relief bill, which they they, uh, passed the House in May, they put in additional funding for the Postal Service to help the Postal Service handle the additional ballots. There are going to be far more mailed-in ballots this time around than in any other election. In 2016, maybe 20% of the public voted by mail. That's likely to be much higher this time. So they specifically put in money to help the Postal Service handle the surge. So far, one of the reasons I think the Republicans have been resisting the Democratic bill is they don't want to put in this extra money for the Postal Service. So one way to deal with this would be to give the post office extra money. Another would be to somehow pressure the Postmaster General to change these new work rules that he's put in place that you've just mentioned, barring overtime. Traditional rule in the post office is they try to get all the mail that they have that day delivered. Uh, He's basically saying if there's mail that's undelivered, you're a mail carrier, it's undelivered at the end of the official workday, come back. Don't deliver it. Wait till tomorrow. Well, this could be a real problem. Um, and really, with, when we're talking about mail-in ballots, we're really talking about two steps. Mailing the ballot to the voter, 
so the voter can fill it out, and then the voter mailing it back to the local board of elections. So it really is going to be going through the mail twice, and so the, any problems with delay get doubled. So what else can be done? Well, one, again, would be to get them to change those rules. Another possibility, of course, is to educate people to, to voting early, you know, asking for their ballots early or getting their ballots and voting them early so that they give the post office more, more time. Another possibility is in some jurisdictions, the um, local election board has set up what are called drop boxes, sort of secure boxes where the voter can drop the, the ballot off. Voter doesn't have to go into the polling place, but the ballot could be dropped off, you know, maybe in a government building, maybe at a shopping mall, maybe at a school. Uh, and so the ballot could be returned without using the postal service. Finally, and this has been one of the more contested issues, is the question of when does the ballot have to be returned? Some jurisdictions require that the ballot be in the local board of elections by end of election day. Uh, but other jurisdictions, I mean, usually mean states, say it's okay for the ballot to come in after election day so long as it's postmarked by election day. So as long as you get the ballot into the system by election day, the fact that it might take the post office five days to bring it in instead of two, that shouldn't count against you. And a number of states are switching to that or being asked to switch to that now. And then one last thing, and I, understand, I see that at least one state is talking about doing this, is putting first-class postage on the ballot. And right now it's being treated as bulk mail, but if states want to pay more money, um, it's a shame that they have so many other expenses they'd be forced to do this. They could use first-class stamps, and that might speed the return of the ballots when they get back. So in 2016, missing a deadline was the second biggest reason a mail-in ballot was rejected. Are any states now moving to try to extend the time that a ballot can be received? And can that be done by executive order? Uh, That's a good question. I believe some states have already done that. Um, and I believe it could be done by executive order. Certainly, a number of states did that, I think, in the context of the primary election. And I think it could be done by executive order or by regulation of the executive order usually comes from the governor, it could be by regulation or an administrative rule of the state board of election, the chief elections officer. Uh, again, whether that can be done uh, through administration might depend on the law of the individual state. Have changes by the executive survived judicial challenges? I think where the courts have been more uh, active is in situations where, like the Supreme Court has been resisting a lot of changes, is when uh, a lower court orders the change. Uh, And there, I think, uh, the Supreme Court has on repeated occasions this, this year so far undone those changes designed to make it easier to get things on the ballot or to vote. But I think... When the executive, whether it's the governor or the secretary, the state secretary of state, um, has agreed to the change, um, I don't think there have been court interventions that have stopped that. There have been so many disputes in so many cases in the last, really going back to about March, March, April during the primaries, that I, I can't say 100% that a court has never stopped that. But I think for the most part, if the state government is agreeable to doing this, Uh, The courts have not stepped in. I want to just go over some of the the Trump challenges, Trump lawsuits. And, you know, you mentioned ballot drop boxes, and I thought that sounded like a great idea. But the Trump campaign is suing Pennsylvania over their drop boxes. How strong is their case? Um, I think a lot of their argument is basically uh, that this is less secure. Now, my sense is that the question of 
balancing access and security is one we normally leave to the states and local governments. Uh, that's a fight about voter ID. Voter ID was supposed to be, you know, prevent against fraud. On the other hand, it makes um, uh, it harder for people to vote. Uh, the courts have generally left that balance to be set by state and local administrators. So you might think that you would, you would have the same rule with respect to the use of drop boxes. Uh, I could see being uh, the jurisdictions being pushed to, to make sure to show that they, they've made them secure. I think that's a legitimate concern as whether or not all these boxes uh, are, are tamper proof, whether, I don't know, there are cameras on them, uh, et cetera. Some jurisdictions have moved towards having kind of barcodes on the ballots to make them traceable. Uh, again, anti-fraud. Uh, but I think the idea that um, I, I think they ought to have a hard time saying that states and local governments can't innovate new mechanisms that make it easier to vote, particularly in the pandemic context. I mean, there is a public health backdrop to all of this, which is that there is a there's likely to be. I mean, we're probably still going to be in the middle of COVID in November. And there's, there's a heightened public health concern. We have large numbers of people showing up at polling places. Trump's campaign is suing Nevada. Explain what that lawsuit's about. Again, it's a claim that by making it easier for people to get absentee ballots, by the state sending absentee ballots, by the state liberalizing the deadline for submitting the absentee ballots, that that is somehow a violation of the right to an election with integrity. One particular issue they've raised is, again, it's really pretty silly, um, is that um, if a ballot is received after Election Day but counted, it violates the congressional law that sets the specific day, this year, November 3rd, as Election Day. Um, what's ludicrous about that is um, what, the, what the state provision says is as long as it's postmarked election, uh, election Day um, or earlier, um, doesn't matter when it's received. Well, Submitting the ballot into the ballot into the mailbox or in the post into the post office and getting it postmarked—that's the equivalent of voting, um, of voting in a polling place. So Congress says you have to vote by election day. Well, the votes have already been cast. This is a problem of receiving them. And absentee ballots—you know—we've had ballots come in from overseas from from soldiers uh, in the armed forces overseas. They they can come in uh, past election day and they're still counted. It's kind of a silly argument that says that if a ballot has been cast before Election Day but is received after Election Day because that's the way the Postal Service works, it somehow is inconsistent with there being one Election Day. Obviously, the Trump campaign is trying to curtail mail-in voting or any kind of voting besides in-person voting every way they can. Is there any proof that Democrats vote by mail more or will vote by mail more than Republicans? Historically, uh, until this all became partisan political in the current election climate, I think there was some evidence that Republicans voted by mail more than Democrats. It was something that older voters particularly liked and rural voters from whom it was actually more difficult to get to the polling place. I think, on, I think overall there was not a big difference. Uh, between Republicans and Democrats in terms of their use of vote by mail. But to the extent there was, I think it was slightly more Republican. And there's also evidence that certain, that many voters of color prefer to vote in person because of suspicions about the Postal Service. They uh, having fought so hard to get the ballot, they, there's a certain degree of satisfaction actually physically voting at a polling place. So I think there is some evidence that uh, voters of color 
particularly African-Americans, were somewhat skeptical. I mean, again, this is all at the margin. I think for the most part, there was not big differences. But to the extent they were, my sense was that vote by mail was, was slightly more commonly used by Republicans than Democrats until this all became partisan currently. Let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court, because you mentioned that until today, the Supreme Court seemed to be undoing all the efforts to ease access to the ballot during the coronavirus pandemic. Just today, the Supreme Court declined to block Rhode Island from proceeding with plans to relax a two-witness or notary requirement for absentee ballots in upcoming elections, rejecting a Republican challenge. Tell us about that case. So as you point out, Supreme Court has now uh, rendered about a half dozen decisions, uh, typically without uh, all of them, I think, without full oral argument or, or generally on the papers, um, uh, dealing with uh, decisions by lower federal courts in one way or another, um, making it easier to get a petition on the ballot for a referendum or easier to vote uh, in light of, of conditions created by the pandemic. Uh, for example, um, allow, uh, allowing uh, the fear of COVID and possibly getting COVID to count as an illness for purposes of an excuse for an absentee vote, or with respect to petitions to get ballot propositions, referenda on the ballot, uh, reducing the number of signatures required. Typically, in order to get uh, a question on the ballot, you have to need a certain number of signatures. People collect them by going around shopping malls and in downtowns and and with, with, with all the shutdowns and the stay-at-home rules, it became almost impossible to collect those signatures. So in a number of lawsuits, uh, various federal judges around the country in different cases, and not always, but a number of them, basically uh, uh, said that under current circumstances, the law, which was normally a valid constitutional law, needs to be relaxed. Uh, they cut the number of signatures. They extend the number, the amount of time to get something on the ballot. They loosen what counts as an excuse. Uh, they might loosen the, the witnessing requirement of your signature for an absentee ballot, et cetera. There are a number of cases like this. Um, until today, the Supreme Court has consistently struck those down uh, under something, uh, rule something known as the Purcell principle, which is that courts shouldn't be changing the rules that govern an election uh, in effect on the eve of the election. Uh, in many of these cases involve primaries, the, the primary season, uh, or uh, approaching deadlines for getting petitions on the ballot. But the sense is that it, when courts change the rules for an election, um, it, it, it could cause confusion. It could be seen as having a partisan consequence. Um, the court has not taken into account the idea that the rules have really been changed by the pandemic itself. And that what the courts are trying to do is uh, revise the rules in light of the changed circumstances presented by uh, the pandemic. But the court, and again, they've often been divided, um, has not recognized that. Today's case was different. This case came out of Rhode Island, as you mentioned. Uh, there was a consent decree in which the state uh, agreed uh, not to enforce the, the two-witness requirement for somebody to be witnessing, somebody witnessing an absentee uh, voter's signing the back of the envelope, that's really them, uh, submitting the, the, the vote, in part because if you're under lockdown, it may be hard to get witnesses. Um, uh, this time, the court said it was different uh, because the state had agreed to this. This was a, a consent decree, uh, a lawsuit brought against the state, but the state ultimately agreed with the change. So the state was not challenging the change, only the Republican National Committee. And the court 6-3 concluded that if the state was okay with this change, 
there was no reason for the court to step in. Does what you've seen, this pattern, does it tell us what will happen in cases coming up where state officials make changes, for example, to either the deadline for mail-in ballots or the way they're handled? With the Supreme Court, it's always like reading the tea leaves. You can never be 100% sure, but it is a hopeful sign that if the decision comes from authorized state decision makers and is consistent with state rules and procedures for doing state business, that they would not step in and that they would accept the change. Thanks, Rich. That's Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. Judges on an on-bank panel of the D.C. Federal Appeals Court grilled former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's lawyer about his claim that a trial court judge has no choice but to grant the Justice Department's surprise motion to dismiss the criminal case against him. Will the full court reverse the decision of the three-judge panel who gave a victory to Flynn and the government? Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson, who's been covering the Flynn case. Let's start with the long background of this case. How do we get to the point where there's an on-bank panel of judges? Well, it does stretch back to charges that Michael Flynn pleaded guilty to. He pleaded guilty to lying to two FBI agents back in the very early days of the Russia investigation. Uh, So he was charged with that. They had him on tape uh, discussing certain matters with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. He uh, did not tell the truth about those conversations to the FBI agents. He was charged. Uh, He eventually pleaded guilty. But then more recently, uh, back in January, he decided to withdraw this plea. And ultimately, around the same time that President Trump was regularly criticizing this case against one of his longtime allies, the Justice Department switched course, uh, abandoned the case, citing new um, evidence and uh, decided to seek dismissal. Now, the judge overseeing the case, Emmett Sullivan, did not uh, immediately rubber stamp this and signaled that he wanted to hold a hearing on the government's motion to dismiss to sort of get some more details about what happened. And uh, General Flynn's attorney asked the appeals court to order him to dismiss the case, a very unusual, rare move, seeking the so-called writ of mandamus to just force the judge to rule one way before he's ever issued a ruling. Uh, So initially, the three-judge panel of the court ruled in Flynn's favor, ordered the judge to, uh, said he had to dismiss the case. He didn't have the authority to look into the motion to dismiss. And uh, Judge Sullivan, again, very rare because the judge had a lawyer represent him in this appeal, asked for an en banc rehearing, and that is what he got. Which lawyer spoke before the panel, there was obviously the lawyer for Judge Sullivan and the lawyer for Flynn. Was the Justice Department represented as well? Yes, the Deputy U.S. Solicitor General, uh, Jeff Wall, was the president. He was questioned by the panel. So a um, very high-ranking, obviously, lawyer for the government, defending the government's decision to uh, di- try to dismiss this case against Flynn um, after he had already pleaded guilty. They really didn't delve too much into the substance of the crime that he uh, pleaded guilty to or his attempt to withdraw his plea. It was really a separation of powers issue that they were debating about for what was essentially a four-hour hearing with no break um, held over the phone and video conference. So they really were looking into whether or not a federal judge had any authority, and if so, what kind of authority to have any discussion or debate surrounding whether or not to grant a motion to dismiss um, a criminal case like this after it's already 
you know, been prosecuted. So very unusual circumstances. So that's why there, there isn't really a lot of precedent around this. But Judge Sullivan's lawyer, Beth Wilkinson, a, a well-known Washington litigator, um, argued that Sullivan had every right to hold a hearing, which is what he wants to do. Um, if he wins this appeal, he'll be able to schedule a hearing and just ask the parties about why they want to dismiss the case. And the government and General Flynn's uh, attorneys say that this is not the role of the judiciary, that he is trying to trample on the executive branch's strict authority over this type of matter. The argument of Flynn's attorney was that the court's role is ministerial. Explain what she meant by that. When she was asked about this, uh, she said that although technically uh, the government does need leave of court to dismiss a, a prosecution under these circumstances, that notwithstanding the fact that a judge needs to sign it, that that doesn't mean the judge gets to decide it, that it, it is really just his role to uh, rubber stamp a motion like this and move on, that it is purely and strictly up to the executive branch, in this case, the Justice Department, to decide who to prosecute and who not to. So it really is a very interesting matter that this court has to decide here about what the role of the judiciary has. So essentially, you're going to have these judges ruling on the extent of their own sort of authority in situations like this, the role of the judiciary. One of the judges, Judge Griffith, said the judge is not simply a rubber stamp. Did all the judges agree with that? Because obviously they're at this point because the panel ruled against the judge in this case. Right. So the three judges, the panel, essentially you could look at, you know, which presidents uh, appointed them to the bench and there were two uh, Republicans and one Democrat. So in a sense, the Trump administration had a little bit of the upper hand, just ideologically speaking. And and so they did say that uh, the case needed to be dismissed. But when you look at the full panel that heard um, these arguments on Bonk, there are more judges appointed by Democrats. So that doesn't strictly mean that they're going to decide one way or the other. It's, it's, it's not possible to really predict anything like that. But there was a lot of skepticism about this idea that a, a judge in this case doesn't have any uh, authority to look into a motion to dismiss. Eric, tell us about some of the interesting hypotheticals some of the judges posed. A few of the judges brought up an inter- interesting argument, though. They said that consider this hypothetical where a prosecutor coming in saying that they want to dismiss a case that they have against the defendant. And right in front of the judge, the defendant hands over a briefcase overflowing with cash to the prosecutor. The prosecutor says, hey, judge, we want to dismiss this case. And it sounds somewhat laughable, but they, they really did talk about this hypothetical quite a bit during this hearing. And the lawyer for General Flynn and the Justice Department Both agreed, even in a situation like that, the judge has no choice but to dismiss the case. Wow. That seems like a big ask. Well, you know, Flynn's attorney, Sidney Powell, and the uh, Justice Department's lawyer, they both said in a case like that, of course, that would be wrong. And what they should do was refer the matter to the Justice Department for the prosecutor to be prosecuted. They're not saying that that should be legal and that a prosecutor should get away with being bribed. They're just saying that they're going to have to find some other way to punish that prosecutor, but that no matter what, they have to dismiss the case against this defendant anyway, even if it appears that the dismissal is the result of a cash bribe. It sounds like a law school hypothetical. And there was another hypothetical involving a nun's video. 
Yes, and, and actually that refers back to the hypothetical I just mentioned. Okay. It, was, uh, it was two different justices sort of asked a, the same hypothetical in a different way. And of course, <laughs> as you mentioned, one of the judges added a little bit of color saying that some nuns approached the judge and said, hey, judge, this case you're overseeing, we have video of the prosecutor being bribed by the defendant, you know, just to try to give it that extra, you know, are these nuns really going to lie to you? You need to listen to what they have to say. So as we said, Judge Sullivan just wants to hold a hearing on this. He wants to hear what happened with this case, why they decided to dismiss it. Of course, that argument has already been laid out quite a bit in the Justice Department's brief. Um, but I don't think we've mentioned yet the, the fact that uh, Judge Sullivan appointed a friend of the court named John Gleason, a former judge, to argue against dismissal. Since Flynn and the Justice Department are on the same page here, he said, hey, I want to hear from someone arguing against dismissal. And that was another controversial aspect of this case that Flynn and the Justice Department said that uh, Judge Sullivan went too far by appointing this amicus. And of course, Mr. Gleason, in his brief against dismissal, said that the, the dismissal of the case was a corrupt attempt to help an ally of President Trump. So, you know, clearly this Flynn, uh, this hypothetical of, of the bribe and whatnot is, isn't too, too far off. No one is alleging there was a, any bribery here, but they do say that this case is being dropped as a favor to President Trump. The government lawyer said that Judge Sullivan's lawyer was sort of walking back her argument. Are they walking back the argument? Because it went from, you know, we're going to have a hearing and do all this to, well, I at least get to review this. Yeah, you know that I noticed that as well. Um, and that is because uh, Beth Wilkinson, uh, Judge Sullivan's attorney, early on really argued that because of this amicus brief that uh, we mentioned, this friend of the court who said that this dismissal was a scam, that the idea was that they should really dig into it and investigate what happened. So that was sort of what the Justice Department and Flynn were saying. That is way too far for a judge to essentially be investigating what the Justice Department is doing. So at at the hearing yesterday, Sullivan's lawyer did sort of walk that back a bit saying, hey, all we want to do is hold a hearing. And so she explicitly said there's not going to be fact-finding at this point anyway, that they're not necessarily even going to call witnesses early on and as this dispute was evolving that, you know, there were even suggestions that uh, Attorney General William Barr could be called to testify about, you know, what role he played in dismissing the case against an ally of his boss. So there were a lot of questions about how far this judge's investigation might go. And uh, Beth Wilkinson really went out of her way yesterday to say, hey, it's just going to be a hearing, but not saying that's all it would be, not saying that it couldn't lead to something else. But uh, the government's lawyer, uh, Mr. Wall, did pick up on that and said, you know, you're trying to walk this back. He said, uh, that tepid defense gives away the game. (laughs) So So you've listened to a lot of these arguments. What was your feeling about how the majority of the judges might rule? Of course, you know, it's impossible to really know. But just based on the some of these questions, especially the hypothetical um, that we discussed about the nuns and, uh, you know, the, having a videotape of one judge described it as a briefcase overflowing with cash being handed to the prosecutor in front of the judge. There seemed to be a, a lot of focus on this idea that no matter what a judge witnesses, he or she has no choice but to just rubber stamp a dismissal like this. Flynn's attorney and the Justice Department lawyer, they both 
said, yes, that would be wrong. A bribe would be wrong, but you can handle a corrupt prosecutor in a separate case. But I'm not sure how that might fly with these judges, because once a defendant successfully bribes a prosecutor, they're now off the hook, right? They've now been freed. The dismissal is done. So it's sort of like a permanent benefit to this defendant, regardless of whatever happens to the prosecutor down the road. And of course, who's going to prosecute the prosecutor, but the Justice Department, which theoretically, who knows how far up, you know, the line this alleged hypothetical bribery could go. So, and this all could be moot because even if Judge Sullivan did deny dismissal of the case, Flynn would still have an opportunity to appeal. So he hasn't even ruled yet. You know, this is all about whether or not the judge can hold a hearing and decide for himself whether to grant dismissal. But they still have a whole appeal process ahead of them um, if Flynn decides to appeal. So this is not the end of the the road for Flynn, no matter what. This is just about whether or not. And in the last few on-bank panels, the ruling did come down to Democratic-appointed judges versus Republican-appointed judges, didn't it? It has. And I think that that sort of speaks to uh, the polarization of, you know, sort of every aspect of the government. It's seeped into uh, the judiciary, potentially. You've heard a lot of judges and, and lawyers for the Trump administration argue that this type of politicization is damaging to the judiciary. But I think that perhaps they see it as they're defending the judiciary. You know, there are a lot of very consequential cases, obviously, that we've seen in the last few years that really cut to the core of the separation of powers and presidential authority. So they're no small matter. And if judges were to simply, I guess, to use the phrase, rubber stamp everything that came before them, then essentially there would be no debate over what an, an administration might be doing. So I think it just happens that this administration is perhaps making decisions and carrying out policies that are triggering a lot of litigation, and a lot of it is very political. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. This is Bloomberg.